Uh, we're just going to jump into God's Word this morning. I'm Jeff Oldham. I am the executive pastor here. What that means is I really have no idea. I have about 30 different uh, job responsibilities, um, and they're all fun. I love serving here. I love who I serve with. I love serving you guys. And more than anything, I love serving Jesus. And so uh, Todd Sapisa, who is our lead pastor here, him and the elders are away on a retreat. And what they're doing is they're looking back at the last couple of years, two or three years here at Melanie Park, and they're evaluating, are we loving Jesus better? I mean, it really comes down to some simple questions. And then they're going to look at our future, and they're going to say, how can we lead each other and the people that God has put in our responsibility to continue to love Jesus better and better, to know him and to love him? So if you guys think about it this week at some point, if you guys would uh, pray with me for the elders as they're away, um, faithfully praying for us to, how guide, to, to, to guide us well. And so uh, just pray for Todd, uh, Mark Hardy, Carrie uh, Gilbert, and Doug McAlpine. So pray for them by name as the elders are away. Well, we've been going through the book of Daniel. If you're a visitor here, we've been... Um, traipsing through a kind of an Old Testament book that has lots of prophecy to it. And so this morning, uh, well, Todd has taken us through the, the book of Daniel. He, his story, basically, his first moments of captivity, his faithfulness, several different trials, his trustworthiness as he served different rulers, his unwavering hope as he was thrown into a literal lion's den, his God-given ability to interpret dreams, his integrity and godly character. And in the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with some pretty heavy apocalyptic literature. And it's difficult. And Daniel's tired. Uh, this morning, we're going to jump into more, uh, chapter 9, where we get a little reprieve from the apocalyptic prophecy. Todd has told us that prophecy has a tendency to be layered uh, one part of prophecy connects to another part of prophecy, kind of meshing together like puzzle pieces to get a clear picture. And so Daniel gets a special privilege this morning of seeing an old prophecy come to fulfillment, though. It's like a Hollywood movie where the main character gets this ancient prophecy, and he's like, oh, wait a second, the numbers are lining up? The events are lining up. Oh, snap, this is about to happen. That happens to, I used the oh, snap thing because Todd used that, and I was like, that's so cute. And so, <laughs> it's for you, Todd. <laughs> but prophecy can be scary as well. It can be exciting, and it can be scary. And so this morning, we're going to look at where Daniel is finding out that a prophecy is about to take place. And so, let's see what happens with him, and see how that connects to us today. So if you guys don't mind, we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into God's Word. So Father, um, we submit to you as a holy God. You are sovereign and good, the only one that is righteous and perfect. And so God, speak to us. Open our hearts. May the soil of our hearts be receiving to the seed of your truth today. We need you. 
just as the songs that was the Brian, Brian and the worship team were singing, um, your mercy is more. And so as we dig into uh, the book of Daniel, reveal to us the places where we fail, where we walk away, where we miss the mark. But God, remind us that your mercy is more. Where our sin runs deep, your grace runs deeper, Lord. So God, grant us grace this morning and help us to see you through your word. Father, we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. So if you guys will turn in your Bibles, um, if you have a phone or a tablet or something like that, you can use that. There's Bibles in the back of the pew as well, or you can see the, the, the scriptures on the screen today. So we're going to be in chapter 9, and it's fairly text heavy, but I'm going to get through it as quickly as possible to get the elements that we need out of it. Um, and then explore what it would have for us. But I think it's worthy of looking at to, to really get an idea of what's going on in the book of Daniel. Okay, so Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the, the Chaldeans. So these first three verses, we're going to stop and kind of give some historical background because I think it's really important for our passage this morning. So just a few things about that first verse. Darius is the uncle of Cyrus. Cyrus is the king over all of Persia. Medo-Persian empire, Cyrus is the guy. And so Darius, uncle Darius, is the guy that's over the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are who took over, uh, the Chaldeans are the Babylonians. And so Israel, Judah, was put into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He handed that kingdom down to Belshazzar, his son. Now the Persians come in and take over Babylon. So that's Cyrus. And then he hands his uncle, Uncle Darius, he gives him Babylon, the area of Babylon. So that's who Daniel works for. So uh, that gives you just kind of a, a, a simple historical background here. It's been the Babylonians. Now it's the Persians, and Darius is the ruler over that section. It says, in his first year of his reign, Darius, I, Daniel, observed the books, the books, the numbers of the years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. That was a weird sentence. Okay, so basically all that's saying is that Daniel is reading back through the books of Jeremiah, and he's starting to see, oh my goodness, something's happening here, and 70 years, so he starts doing math, we're going to be in captivity seven years, we've been in captivity, wait a minute, when did 605 BC, remember time starts or goes backwards in BC, we count it backwards, they were in 605, the first year of Darius was 539. So then you're like, wait a second, okay, that's, that's like 66, 67 years. So Daniel was like, oh my goodness, we've been in captivity almost 70 years, and the book of Jeremiah is telling us we're about to be free from this captivity. Now, if it was me, I'd be like, boom, let's do this. We're about to be free. These Persians are crazy. We're about to go back home. And so I'd be celebrating. Something weird happens, though. 
Daniel reacts differently than I would. So let's see how he reacts, and then we'll go from there. So the third verse, Daniel 9, 1, 3, I mean, uh, Daniel 9, uh, third verse. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer, pleading with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. That doesn't sound like any party I've been to. I mean, maybe a goth party, but I don't, a little darker, but not anything like a three-year-old's birthday party. No one's wearing sackcloth and throwing ashes at people. It'd be a weird party. I wouldn't want to be a three-year-old. All right, so he's, he reacts to it differently than I would. But I think if we look back at Jeremiah's prophecy, chapter 25, I think we could get some hints to why he's like on his knees wearing sackcloth and ashes. So let's look. Jeremiah 25, we're going to start in verse 4. You can go to your Bibles there if you want, or it'll just be on the screens for you. It said, the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again. But you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear, hear, saying, turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and do not follow other gods to serve them and worship them. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord. I'm going to skip down to verse 8. Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies says, because you have not obeyed my words. Behold, I will send Nebuchadnezzar, which he did, king of Babylon, my servant to bring them against this land, which he did. I will completely destroy them, which happened. This entire land will be placed in ruins and an object of horror, which happened. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. There's the prophecy he was reading. So he's reading this and he's looking and going, oh my gosh, 70 years is almost up. Now, Daniel took a posture of humility because he was becoming fully aware their captivity was God's doing. Not because Babylon or Persia was stronger. They were being disciplined for their disobedience, for their rebellion, and God orchestrated it. That's why he was taking a position of humility. They had sinned against God. They had rebelled against God. But God was disciplining them out of love. Now, I remember a time when I was in college, I went to a convenience store, wrote a check for a few little sundry items. Those of you that are below 35 years old, I don't know if you know what a check is, but you write it out and you write a number on it and you hand it to them just like you would money. We didn't have debit cards. Well, my check went to the person, I got my goods, I went home. The next day, I got a letter from the convenience store saying, your check bounced. You didn't have $7 in your banking account. As a college student, that checks out for me. So I didn't, have, I didn't have $7. I was getting a $25 overdraft fee from the um, convenience store. The bank contacts me and says, hey, your check bounced. I'm like, I know. They contacted me. And so they said, you owe us $25. So for my $7 mistake, I had a $57 grocery bill. As a college student, I didn't have $57. So what do you do as a college student if you don't have money? Call mom. That's right. I called mom. So I called mom and I'm like, mom, this is what happened. And I don't have any money in my bank. And she's listening intently. And this is what she said. She said, oh, Jeff, that's horrible. I'm so sorry. You'll figure it out and hangs up. <laughs> I'm like, what? Mom, is that you? I thought it may be dad. 
And so, <laughs> and so I, I was like, I don't, this is crazy. But the, so I go to work the next day. I had a check waiting for me. I pay off my, my debt. I pay the, the convenience store and the, and the bank back. And it, and it cost me a lot of money. But I'll tell you what, I never bounced a check again. Now, my mom, although it seemed cruel at the moment, was being very loving to me, wasn't she? I mean, I think that's the same thing that God was doing with the Israelites right then. It seemed painful for them to be removed from their people and put into captivity. But if it brings us back to a place where we know the Lord, what a genuine loving gift it is. We really don't understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ until we understand the bad news of our hearts. So let's keep going and see what Daniel, how Daniel pleaded and confessed to the Lord. I think it gives us a great picture of the posture that we should take when we understand our own sin. So because he understands that God is always reliant, he always fulfills his promises, He's always good, and he's always loving. And what was happening to them had nothing to do with the Israelites being better behaved. It's just that they were being disciplined in love. So let's see the confession. This is going to be in verse 4 as we continue in Daniel 9. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, said, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and faithfulness for those who love him and keeps his commandments. We have sinned, we have done wrong, and acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from our, your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our leaders, our fathers, and all the people of the land. So there's a few things to notice here. I think, firstly, is that Daniel acknowledges the goodness of God. Firstly, he goes, mm, you're good, Lord. Because he keeps his promises, it's the Israelites that goofed up. It's us that walk away. As we read some of the excerpts from the rest of Daniel's confession, I want you to notice something, though, that he uses plural pronouns like we and our and us. And, and as we do it, kind of keep an eye on those. See how often he does it. So let's read through it, and I think it reveals something to us as well. So, Starting in verse 7, it says, Righteousness belongs to you, but to us open shame, as it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds, which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, Lord, our kings, our leaders, our fathers, because we have sinned against you, our Lord, our God, belong compassion and forgiveness because we have rebelled against you. Skip down to verse 11. Indeed, all Israel has violated your law and turned aside, not obeying your choice. So the curse has gathered forth on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. Just as it was written in the law of Moses, all disaster has come to us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our wrongdoing and giving attention to your truth. 
If we read the whole confession, all of those verses in the front end of that prayer, Daniel uses plural pronouns almost 30 times. This tells us a few things. First, that Daniel is realizing that sin is not just a bad behavior. He saw sin as something that runs through all humanity, including himself. Remember, Daniel was a pretty high-integrity dude. He had been put in leadership positions with each of the leaders he had had as an outsider. So this guy, by God's grace, was moving up the ladder of leadership because he was super high integrity, great character, wonderful, godly living, yet he still saw sin in himself. Secondly, in a hyper-individualistic culture, we have a tendency to see our sin as personal and independent while forgetting that ramifications happen to others as well. And then I think lastly, as a local body of Christ followers, I think we're supposed to lean on each other, celebrate together, mourn together, and many times we have to understand that we fail together. Our sin is destructive, it's progressive, it breaks fellowship, and it has communal consequences. God's covenant was not with an each individual Israelite, it was with the nation of Israel, and they had broken his covenant. So then Daniel goes on to petition the Lord. He's like, look, we blew it. Totally. That was on us. He's looking back at Jeremiah and looking exactly what God said would happen, happened. Not because God is bad, because the Israelites rebelled. So Daniel steps in as an advocate for the nation. A lot like our elders are doing for us right now. Praying over us. Desperately as they point us to a good God. So Daniel steps in and he confesses their rebellion and he asks God boldly to turn away his hand of discipline. So let's pick it up in verse 15. So now our God, listen to this prayer of your servant and to his pleas. And for your sake, Lord, let your face shine upon your desolate sanctuary. My God, incline your ear to listen. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city which is called by your name, for we are not presenting our pleas before you based on any merit of our own. That's important. But based on your great compassion. And I love how he finishes here. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and take action for your sake. My God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. And Daniel finishes this prayer with a vehement plea for restoration of the earthly kingdom of Israel in order to glorify God's name. Daniel states that this redemption cannot take place because all of a sudden the behavior of the Israelites has changed. They're still jacked up. But because he has experienced God's character, he knows only the Lord is perfectly righteous, abundantly forgiving, and uncommonly compassionate. The same exchange stands over us today. Our redeemed relationship with the Lord will never be based on our behavior. I cannot work good enough to get into heaven. If you guys can show me any book, any religious belief or teachings that says you can do this many things and then you get to go to heaven, show it to me. It doesn't exist. 
because it'll never be based on our behavior. That would be self-righteousness. Our righteousness is only given to us as an exchange. So it rests solely upon the shoulders of God's grace, not on ours. It's his willingness to love us despite us. That's an amazing truth. Now, if we're paying attention, though, inside Daniel's prayer, we can see ourselves. We can see ourselves individually. We can see ourselves as a church body. We can see ourselves as a bigger Christian culture. But we definitely can see ourselves as a society, can't we? You see, Daniel left us clues on how, to, how Israel fell into captivity. Fortunately, we can use these same clues to determine if we're captive to a sin pattern, maybe spiritually stuck. We just can't get any traction. Now, here may be some indicators that that's happening. So Brian was singing uh, the joy of the Lord, two or three songs about the joy of the Lord. I don't know how many people in this room, do we really experience God's joy? Or is it the opposite? Are we tired? Frustrated, empty, angry, alone, maybe even sleepy, spiritually sleepy. Not because of this sermon. I mean, it could be. (laughs) That was to wake you up, by the way. Um, But we can. We can go to sleep spiritually, kind of do our own thing. If that describes you, let's follow me back through this prayer where I found six signs that led... Uh, Israel into captivity, and let's see how they relate to us. So pay attention to these. Is the, are these things that may uh, exemplify your life right now? And if so, we've got um, good news for you. The first one, though, is turning away from God's word. In verse 5, Daniel says, we have sinned, we have done wrong, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. See, when we stop relying on God's word as the ultimate authority of what is true and good, then we start relying on ourselves to determine um, how to live life. Be real careful here, because this type of thinking breeds instability, anxiety, and stress. Did you know we're the most medicated generation ever? I wonder why. Because it's dangerous. And it's our first time that we are captive or stuck. This may be easy to say, yeah, the world's so messed up and those people aren't following the Lord. But are we? Have we turned away from God's truths and embraced some cultural truths that are unstable and shifting? The second thing we see is in verse 6, that we stop listening to wise counsel. I've seen this over and over. Uh, Daniel says, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name. Now, there's a time in my life that I was neck deep in sin, and I didn't want to hear from anybody that I trusted or respected. Does that sound like you? I wanted to hear from somebody that they were going to tell me that whatever I was doing was okay. The problem was, was what I was doing was super destructive. I even had a friend that would come and say, man, just follow your heart. You deserve to be happy, although the wake of destruction behind me was massive. I was leading a secret and hidden life, 
I had stopped listening to sound advice because I was a slave to my sin. Have you stopped listening to good people around you? The third one is feelings of shame. Verse 7, Daniel says, Righteousness belongs to you, Lord, but to us, open shame. This may be another way that we are stuck. Shame is a brutal indicator that we are captive to sin because the voice of shame tells us that we're dirty. Shame makes identity claims. We're no good. We are not worthy. We'll never be enough. I want you guys to hear this. Shame is an assassin. It's here to steal everything. John 10.10 says, um, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I love finishing that verse because he says, I came to give you life and life to the full, an abundant life. Shame steals life. Now, feelings of guilt, those are healthy. Those are realizations that our behaviors may have stepped outside of God's plan for our flourishing. But shame is nasty. Stick with me, though. There is a message of hope just like we heard in John 10.10. The fourth one is this, isolation, a lack of community. Daniel says in verse 7, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, in all the countries that you've been driven. God separated his people, almost like being sent to your room or maybe like sit, out, sit in the timeout chair, and they were feeling the effects of this isolation. Now, we isolate because we don't want people to know what's going on because it's painful. And we listen to the voice of shame. But isolation is dangerous. My friend Matt McLeod says that we are sheep as Christ followers, but that he is coming to love the safety and security of dumb and goofy sheep like me. We need each other. My friend Bruce our youth pastor says that the uh, Christian life is a team sport. <laughs> we can't do it alone. We were created in God's loving community to live in community, and isolation is a trap. Not relying on God's word. Stop listening to wise counsel. Feelings of shame. Isolation. Those are traps. Here's the fifth one. Stop seeing, we stop seeing God as good, merciful, and forgiving. Verse 9 says that to the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. I think the Israelites lost sight of that. They started determining for themselves what was right and good. Now, this can be a subtle trap because the world wants to dictate what love and mercy look like, what compassion looks like, what's good for us, but the world's viewpoint shifts and moves with culture. These narratives are constantly changing and they're divisive but I think we listen to them. I'm going to figure out what love looks like. I'm going to figure out what mercy looks like when God is revealing it to us all the time. No wonder anxieties are on the rise. If you're stuck or feel captive, it may be because you stop believing God is good. That's a real thing. We're going to talk about it further in just a second. The last one is this, obedience. Obedience seems like a chore rather than an act of love. 
Verse 10 and 11 say this, and we did not obey, we, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings. Indeed, all Israel has violated your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. Now, this is a big one, guys. Obedience, especially in our postmodern culture, she seems like a chore, like a burden. I know what I'm supposed to do, but it's a pain in the glutes, I'll say that. The word obey is a four-letter word. <laughs> it's not a fun word. Yet our obedience is at the core of our love for God. Listen to what he says. Jesus says in John 14, 12, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Sounds conditional, doesn't it? It's not. It's just a response to who God is. His ways are for our flourishing. Why wouldn't I want to obey them? But I choose not to. Even the Great Commission, Matthew 28 says this, teaching them to follow all that I command you. The NIV version actually says to obey all that I command you. One of the things as disciples of Jesus is not just teaching the precepts of what God teaches, but to teach people how to obey those commands as well. Obedience is an act of love. But in all honesty, the reason I don't want to obey God's guidance at times is because at times I think sin will give me what I need. That's why I don't obey. I look at the world and think, that's going to be a much better way of getting joy or pleasure rather than following you, Lord. It's not because God's not good. It's because I look and say, I think I could do it better. At times, I run the risk-reward metric and determine a little sin is worth it. But sin never stays static. Hear this. Sin is always progressive, always grows, always devours. It's a killer. And it comes through the voice of shame so many days. Listen to what James 1.15 says. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. I don't want to obey because I think something else can give me a little pleasure. But all I'm doing is a trap to a prison. So, turning away from God's word. We stop listening to wise counsel. We have these deep feelings of shame. We start to isolate ourselves. We stop seeing God as good. We see obedience as a burden rather than an act of love. It leads to prisons, places of captivity, being stuck spiritually. So how do we go from this death to life, find freedom? I told you there was hope in this message. Thank you for really sweet and uplifting songs at first because this is hard to listen to. We find our God-honoring principles in today's passages that point us towards a pathway to freedom. If any of these things describe you, Lord, please open our ears by the power of the Holy Spirit to your word so that we may find freedom today, Lord. It's going to come in four different things. C-C-R-R. The first one is C, and this is what Brian took us through as he was singing the music. Confess. We have to own up to our open rebellion. The first step is always going to be a step of humility. Let's follow Daniel's example and lay it down before the Lord. 
David cried out, I have sinned against you and you alone, Lord. God's ready to listen, forgive, and he never does it with crossed arms. I think so many of us have this picture of him going, you screwed up again. When his posture is, come sit with me. He's ready. Now, there is, here's a caveat. If you're stuck because you maybe experienced a stronghold in your life because of something that evil has, that you've experienced or something done to you, the first step may be walking through the process of forgiveness. It's still a step of humility. And there are sins that aren't self-inflicted. You may need to walk through that, that process of forgiveness first. But for those of us that are continually shooting ourselves in the foot, confession is our first step. Confess to God, and just as Brian said, confess to one another. In the book of James, it says, confess um, your sins one to another and pray for each other, and there will be healing. You guys know it. The healing part is that we've confessed and that we're praying for each other. Second one leads right into that, community. So first C is confession. Second C is community. We have to surround ourselves with wise, healthy, and honest people. God was bringing his people back after 70 years to be a people once again because he knows that we wither and die in isolation. So do you have people in your life that you trust, that have a track record of godly living? Listen to them. You may have to look at who you're hanging around with and determine that some of these unhealthy relationships have got to be severed. We all need people in our lives that are going to be honest with us, invite us back to a good and gracious God. But if you feel isolated, let us help you find a small group, plug into a Bible study, get involved in women's ministry. Awesome job wherever Sherry is. Her heart is to connect people. So next weekend, if you're a woman that's isolated, go. Sign up. Two weekends from now is our men's ministry breakfast. Sign up. Get connected back to men. Guys, the two things that bring me back to the Lord is God's word and bacon. And so <laughs> it will be served there. So, yeah. Can I, thank you. Thank you. Can I get an amen? No, I'm just <laughs> That's so bad, isn't it, that we say amen to bacon. All right, so I think this is a heavy message, and every once in a while we need to laugh and not take things so seriously because God looks down on us and says, you are good because I make you good. And that's the third one, to remember. So it's confess, community, remember. This one's so powerful. We have to remember that, have a constant reminder that God is for us and that he is good. Daniel was reminded of God's compassion and forgiveness even as they were in exile because God is good beyond our circumstances. This is personal for me. Our daughter, um, Claire, struggled with this a couple of years ago. She was working through this idea, is God really good? Is he loving? Is he right? Is he just? She was watching some friends choose lifestyles and pathways that were not honoring to God. 
wondering how to love them well, to not dismiss their hurts or pains, to try to understand their choices and to listen well. But this process of trying to make sense of a broken world can be disorienting and discouraging times. It can. So she learned that she can't fix the brokenness that she sees in her friends, but she can invite them back to the one who can. It was a group of young ladies and the power of God's word that kept wooing our daughter back to a good and gracious God. She now feels stronger, probably deeper in her faith than she ever had. These are her words. I keep being reminded daily that God is the only source of good. Maybe somebody in here needs to hear that. He's not against you. If you're you're going through some sort of discipline, it's out of love. But it's a good God that does that, not evil. He never crosses his arms at us. His posture is always going to be arms open wide. The last one is this, repent. So confess, community, um, remember, and then repent. And this is going to include all of us, whether you feel stuck or not. We as followers of Jesus will be in a consistent cycle of repentance. If you've heard the word repent before or repentance, but you really don't know what it means, In the Old Testament is this really good definition in the book of Daniel, verse 13. He said, we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our wrongdoing and giving attention to your truth. Repentance is a two-step process. I turn away from those things that I know, that I know are destructive to my life. I stop listening to that crazy voice of shame, and I start listening to a merciful voice of God. I turn, and then I go into what is true. Just turning away from our sin is not repentance. That's just holding on for dear life. We have to turn back to what is true. In my words, this is the best I can do with repentance. Repentance is turning away from anything that, that, God, that goes against God's character. Let me try that again. Repentance is turning away from anything that goes against God's character and then asking the Holy Spirit to reorient our our hearts towards Jesus. I walk away from those things that are damaging and I walk towards the one that heals. Repentance. You see, this freedom that we so desire has no value. This pathway is not truly sustainable without a relationship with the one that brought us freedom with his own life. It's Jesus that we follow down this path of freedom. Where Daniel was an advocate for the nation of Israel, Jesus is an advocate for all of humanity. For all that trust him, for all that are willing to follow him. So as we submit to the Lord, we start flipping captivity on his head. We start getting the keys to the chains that imprison us because Here's the reality. When I stop chasing the things of this world and I start running to the one that heals, I want to run to God's word because he is God's word. John 1 says this, that the word became flesh. 
flesh lived among us. Jesus is real, and he walks with us, and he talks with us, and he lives up and down the aisles. And if you get up and meet with him every morning, it is freedom. I want to run to his word. I desire to listen to his wise counsel because I know the people in my life that I trust are going to point me to Jesus. When I submit myself to Jesus, any feelings of shame, please hear this, are obliterated because he is my identity. I'm not dirty any longer because he made me clean. I'm worthy because he is worthy. I'm good because he is good. I'm enough because he is enough. Jesus puts a chokehold on shame. Just like in our passage today where Daniel says, we are not presenting our pleas before you based on any of our own merits, but based on your great compassion, Lord. I'm never alone. He never crosses his arms in disgust. And the more I get to know him, the more I fall in love with him. And over time, obedience becomes a pleasure, not a chore. He said in the book of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Guys, he's the only pathway to freedom, period. So, if you're stuck, you can confess, remember, surround yourself with community, and repent. Get plugged in. If you've never known him, repent and believe today. He's worth it. Nearly 20 years ago, he called me to out of a dark captivity, and I've walked with him in freedom ever since. You can too. Today. Let's pray. Father, you and you alone are holy. You and you alone are compassionate. You and you alone are patient and kind. Anytime we approach you, Lord, it's never with crossed arms or a view of disgust. Lord, you tear those walls down and you invite us to you. It's not based on our behavior, Lord. It's based on our trust in you. I am good because you are good. I am whole because you are whole. I am complete because you are complete, Lord. Father, I hope that sinks into the depths of our hearts and that we can live out a a life of joy. Father, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, compassion, self-control only come from you, Lord. So God, help us to confess, repent. Father, to look to you in all things and be reminded of your goodness. Father, we pray this in the mighty and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.